this podcast is going to be a lot more aggro than usual as we talk uh. about <laughs> Team Ico fans. I love it. And welcome back, listeners and viewers, if you're watching us on Twitch. And thank you very much for downloading this episode of Phanthropological. My name is Nick G. And today, we're going to be talking about fans of the team, as I now understand it, Eco series of games. And here with me to do that are my two best friends, Nick T. If I'm feeling a little bit tired, it's because I did not eat enough iguana tails. I'm very sorry. I mean, I'm not, because that sounds like a really daunting task, but... Uh, I'm going to see if I can pull through this. Sans Iguana Tales. And Nick Z? Um, you can call me a mono-podcaster because I'm <laughs> not Dorman. Ooh. Halfway there. Tough room. Tough room. <laughs> and also, hopefully still on the line with us, our uh, special guest and author of the Boss Fight book, book's book. On Shadow of the Colossus, Nick Sutner, a.k.a. for this episode, Nick Prime. Nick, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you. Hello. Has it has it been for Nick's, by the way? Is this a new precedent? Do you have the most Nick's ever? This is We had some th- we had some famous last words from last season, which were coming up to five Nicks. <laughs> oh man, okay. Yeah. Well, you've already reached uh, the, this this, this, this ties this ties the max Nicks, but uh, Okay. <laughs> speaking yeah, of uh, speaking of uh, lizard tales for uh, this one would work for audio. But I have a little uh, sort oh, of sweet. clay <laughs> lizard here with a white tail that my girlfriend cool. made for me a few years ago. Oh, oh wow. And I also have for me, which might be harder to see detail of, I have a little colossus that she had made out of like uh, a small pea. So it's got a little steps. It. Pretty wow. cute, yeah. Anyhow, so there's a lot of memorabilia in this room. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I'm going to get us started off talking a little bit about the Team Eco series of games uh i am definitely going to be wrong because uh i've only watched and played a little bit of the game series uh but that's why we've got nick prime here mm-hmm. I'm, I'm here as, as a corrections department let's start off with a little bit about the game series in case you're listening to this episode and you don't know what the heck we're talking about uh team eco was the development team behind the japanese video game uh eco shadow of the classes uh and what was the other one Guard- last, I was going to say Guardians of the Last. Uh, the Last Guardian, all of which were led by game designer Humito Ueda. It's part of the Sony Interactive Entertainment Japan Studios Production Development Department Number 1. And uh, the first two games, Eco and Shadow of the Colossus, came out for the PlayStation 2. Uh, the third game, Last Guardian, began uh, before Ueda's departure in 2011. Uh, but later, a different company took over the work and continued in 2014. The games are usually characterized by minimalist storytelling and gameplay, an atmospheric use of bloom and high dynamic range rendering and lighting, and the use of fictional languages. Their products are frequently cited as examples of video games as an art form. I looked into a little bit of search data, uh, which is not usually very telling of how popular a game is or a movie or, or anything like that, but it does give us a little bit of a glimpse into how popular something is. And based on search data from Google Trends, which happens to go back to 2004, which is you know, a nice little 
lineup there. Uh, the biggest peaks of interest in the games has already passed. Uh, they tend to be centered around when the games were released. So, for example, around October 2005, which was the release of Shadow of the Colossus, February 2018, when the remake was released, and December 2016, when The Last Guardian was released, I had a really hard time finding Eco because it's three letters and Google <laughs> could not handle that. <laughs> it's also pre-2004, so maybe there wasn't too much to go off of. That's true. There was a uh, Eco and Shadow of the Colossus bundle, but the data wasn't didn't really line up with anything in particular. Yeah, that thing is hard to search for because it's, it's like it's way too like overtly named. Well, that that's a good question. Do you think Ueda planned it that way? He's just like this is going to be very distinctive, and no, it's not going to it's going to stand on its own merits. You mean for wait for that collection specifically? Well, for the name of the of of Eco in particular. Oh, uh, that's a good question. I mean, I, I sort of forget the origins i mean it's the name of the the main character you're playing as you know in the game and it is it is very sort of singular and iconic uh and the you know the like even the logo as well and and then uh shadow of the colossus was uh called uh, what nico for a while i'm forgetting all my my (laughs) facts here and then um trico is the name of the creature in last guardian so it's this theme and that's sort of like threaded throughout the games i also looked up the top 10 countries uh, the lists don't differ too much for Shadow of the Colossus and The Last Guardian, but uh, in order, starting with Shadow of Colossus, we've got Brazil, Chile, Costa Rica, Japan, Argentina, El Salvador, Canada, Uruguay, Mexico, and Spain. Uh, the Last Guardian, slightly different. Chile and Brazil are swapped. Canada's in third place for some reason. Hey. The UK makes an appearance. Spain is still there. Norway, Puerto Rico, Portugal, United States, and New Zealand. So, pretty similar bunch. Spanish and Portuguese speaking country. Yeah, I have no idea why that is. Huh. Like in in past, we, we've seen like the Philippines make an appearance on pretty much every list. Yeah, as well as well as Singapore. <laughs> yeah, and Singapore <laughs> wasn't. I think I think these three. Like while we're talking about sort of the over uh, of these three games, um, it's it, it's interesting because I think there's sort of a lot of like different baggage associated with each of them, for better or worse, and. They're all sort of have a very different place in gaming history in an interesting way. I think more so than most like trilogies in a sense where, uh, you know, I, I think Eco was an incredibly influential game. And you can look at things like The Last of Us and Half-Life 2 and like all the stuff over time that I think was like clearly influenced in some way by Eco and just the basic like companionship and uh, a lot of the sort of minimalist design decisions in the game. So I think its influ- influence is really clear. And it was one of the earliest sort of modern example of, of games as art, relatively modern. Um, and then I I think you know shadow which is what we're mainly going to talk about i assume i think uh shadow is a lot of people's favorite even if it's like you know a lot of people think it's the most flawed possibly and a lot of people had issues with the controls but um people like myself it just really lodged itself as my favorite game ever um but it also went down a path that no other games really followed or went down and it certainly it's it's influenced a lot of designers in other ways but not in a very overt way, especially in AAA development, for the most part, which is uh, which is interesting. And then Last Guardian, of course, took like you know ten years of development and had this long protracted uh, cycle and changed platforms over time, and finally released and and I think was turned out great, which is surprising. I mean, both those things are maybe surprising. So it's just a, a these sort of things are sort of set in a weird place over you know eighteen years of of uh, game history. 
And I think there's also so like even thinking about them as a trilogy is interesting because there's so few ties between the games, but <laughs> there's some that are more obvious than others, and there are there are plenty, but there's also so little sort of uh, you know story and world building beyond the immediate cutscenes in in some ways as well. That that's why it's all the more exciting to sort of speculate about a lot of the mm-hmm. stuff, and I think that that mystery is what's uh, made the game sort of you know as as sort of a perennial to talk about as they are. I think adding to that is is um, perhaps an element of timeliness too, because the PlayStation 2 was one of the most successful video game consoles mm-hmm. ever. And it, it well, what was it? It was popularized largely because it had a DVD player. Yeah. But uh, as a result of that, if you have games coming out during that era and the people of that time kind of like grew up with those games and with a long time span between them, um, you have both this element of nostalgia kind of tying people to the game, but also since the games don't have a lot of like overt story, it's very easy to like, I don't know. Like when I think back to my childhood, I'm like, Oh, wouldn't it be cool if this happened in this game, but it's different when there's not a lot of game to continue coming out and you keep getting older and like little tidbits come out for say like the last guardian (laughs) (laughs) is coming out. It finally came out (laughs) as an example. Yeah, and I think people tend to remember these games as a, a feeling more than a story, um, yeah. and this weird feelings of like you know loss or guilt or regret or adventure or mystery, like all these things that I think are you know are true of some other games, but aren't uh, as common of a feeling as as like uh, you know modern gamers. So um, and just that sort of minimalist feeling of being out alone in this huge. Uh, sort of sparse, uncaring world, which finally games are getting a little bit back to, um, even with things like Minecraft in a weird way. But uh, um, but that was sort of a while in between. I think that's how people think about the games. Is it really it conjures a lot of memories? As you say that, purposefully having those long stretches where you're like reflecting on playing in the game or what you've played so far, because there's long, there's no other enemies, just these long, long journeys, and no music for like huge portions so like it's, yeah. it's almost designed to they're going to come away with a feeling and not just the gameplay or, or whatever and there's other things too like you know bonding with your horse i think uh is something that happens really because of just the pure like time spent with your horse and mm-hmm. things like that so there's all these other interesting weird like knock-on effects that you don't necessarily uh, appreciate while it's happening but then suddenly you've like grown this bond just because you're yeah it's just you and your horse you know in the silence like riding forever and another interesting, actually, in my book, I talked to uh, one of the interviews was uh, with Eric Chahi, who did uh, Another World and From Dust, like a sort of legendary game designer. And uh, he talks about something in the game where the sort of when you're on foot, the distances in the game really feel infinite. Um, and it just takes forever to get anywhere. And as soon as you hop on your horse, that whole relationship to the landscape changes. And I thought that was pretty interesting, too. And again, there's another reason to sort of bond to your horse, but also just gives you a sense of the, the scope of the game. Whereas if you think of other modern open world games or, you know, Spider-Man or anything with fast travel, it's like you you can just like cross huge distances in a second and it, it doesn't give you the same attachment to the space, which I was thinking about last night, actually, even while playing Spider-Man is just sort of cruising around the city and it's amazing and it, it you know, gives you a lot of the feelings of New York and I feel like Spider-Man... Um, and I've been to New York a good few times, but it wasn't giving me any sort of sense of geography and placement or landmarks because I'm just sort of like 
you know, going randomly around the city doing different tasks. And it's, it's a fun game, but it, it, you know, even in its sort of uh, specific realism, it's, it's not accomplishing that in a, in a weird way. You brought up the, the sense of space. And it's interesting, too, because a lot of games have gone in a completely different direction than the Team Eco games have gone. Like, you may have a very large, massive world, or even not a massive world, like you're talking about Spider-Man, which is in New York. New York is not a gigantic take place it's very dense but it's it's not like a, a whole country or anything like that um but the different approaches in the sense that every space in games like grand theft auto or spider-man or, or more modern games has something going on everything has to pack a punch if you're playing an mmorpg it's like well that npc has things for you to do that one has story that like every nook and cranny has something going on but in like even shadow of the classes there's just nothing there's i mean n- nothing in the, the sense that you're not intended to act on anything there's obviously things to look at and things to admire and the, the scenery and the atmosphere but it's it's a completely different situation that the that that game and some other games have taken and the majority have not Totally, yeah, and I think that's um, also a, a symptom of when the the time when in which the game was made, where I think as a modern game, especially as anything but like indies and AAA have largely fallen out. There's not much of a double A market anymore, uh, and with free to play games and everything else, there's sort of there's so much risk and such high budgets on a lot of games, and there's so many things competing for players' time that as a big publisher or a platform, you can't really risk a player putting down a game uh, and not coming back to it or wanting to trade it in. It's like you have to pack tens of hours of, of value in some sense and keep hook people's attention, um, you know, like just relentlessly. Whereas I think at the time, uh, I think Ueda really builds games in a more experiential way where you, you know, there's, there's value inherently in just being in the space and, you know, feeling the mood of it. It's beautiful. And, uh, and I think, you know, games can't really afford to do that now for the large parts if they have these these massive budgets. And that was a weird point in time, I think, where that game, I don't know the budget, but I think it was, you know, still a reasonably large budget, but had these very long, quiet moments. And I think not a lot of AAA stuff does that these days because they, they really can't afford to take that risk and lose people. What was your particular journey with these games with eco um i think you know i first remember playing it on the on a demo disc that came with the official playstation magazine many years ago which was part of like the network of of sites that i ended up going to write for later which is which is a weird thing for me (laughs) but um so that's where i first experienced it and i was just like a huge fan of the game and it really just made me you know it was the first step in me feeling like games could be something different uh in my life and sort of fit into a different place emotionally um but also at the time i was really experiencing it in a vacuum i didn't have a lot of friends who were gamers in the same way and uh you know there wasn't much like sort of uh, internet culture yet and all that uh and then shadow of the colossus years later uh i you know read sort of previews in um in different magazines including egm which was another one that's the one that i ended up going to write for and uh I remember reading the description of a game where the the levels were these the, like the level itself was this huge creature and that just sounded incredible to me and you had to solve puzzles on it and I just love the description of it and a couple screenshots were so sort of 
just beautiful and affecting and strange and curious. And so I was super excited about it. And I worked at EB Games at the time um, as an assistant manager in a store in Chicago. And uh, my manager had sort of similar taste to me a lot of the time. And and we were both incredibly excited for the game. And um, I think we ended up racking up the most like pre-orders in our district just because we were like so excited about this. And everyone came and we were like, have you heard about this game coming up? (laughs) So uh, and then it came out and and. uh, yeah, and, and it was sort of uh, not only did it deliver on the premise of that gameplay concept of big creatures as levels and puzzles in a you know in a sort of more practical mechanical way that I really enjoyed, but um, just the the mood of the game and some of the emotional impact that we're talking about in the story of the game and having these big giant battles where at the end of them it felt sad instead of celebrated like that was very different from other stuff i played in a lot of ways and it just immediately lodged itself as like oh this is this is the best thing i've ever played and um and and it went on to really inform uh the way that i thought about a lot of games and art and media uh and was really an important thing in my life since then um which is sort of what led to me writing the book years later um and uh and yeah, and then also I wrote sort of as a separate thing, I also wrote a sort of wrote a book on The Last Guardian, which was um, sort of an art book behind the scenes book that uh, Future Press put out um, that I wrote like 80% of uh, uh, in tandem with them. Um, and that was a very different sort of experience because it wasn't like my sort of personal project and book and take on it. But in in writing that book, I got to fly to Japan and sit with a development team and talk to everyone. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so I got to really go deep on this experience, unfortunately, after I'd written the Shadow book. But now, holistically, my experience with them is pretty pretty deep and cool. So, um, okay. yeah, so I've had a pretty interesting, interesting journey of, like, being, you know, sort of an excited kid playing this <laughs> seminal game to sitting in their office years later, like... Uh, you know, writing a, a book about their stuff. And and you can't quite see, but on the wall behind me, well, maybe you can see it as a, a Last Guardian poster uh, for the Japanese release that's, like, signed by the whole team that they gave me when I was on what? site, um, which, is, which awesome. is pretty cool. That's super cool. <laughs> anyway, that was the long answer. It's not like your interest in the developers of the game was, was at the level of uh, idolatry or anything like that, but what was it like going to Japan, meeting the people that, developed these games that you you know racked up a lot of pre-orders for and uh, were really excited about yeah uh, especially after uh, the last guardian had taken so long to come out and i imagine that'd be something that was kind of on your mind and then it was a real thing yeah it was um it was pretty surreal i mean it was you know a few months before the game came out uh and I sort of played through the game at home by myself and like playing a game like that in a vacuum especially after all that baggage for years was a really weird experience to like familiarize myself and then uh, flew out to Japan and met up with the, the two future press guys um, uh, and sort of planned this thing and then went to the offices together and uh, just the whole experience really of like going to gen design and um, meeting even outside of, uh, of Oeda who didn't sort of come until the second day I played through the whole game with the uh, with the rest of the development team through the first day um, but even meeting like horgai san who runs the um, who runs the studio and uh, people sort of who who I had associations with just from knowing them and writing the or from knowing about them after writing the shadow of the Colossus book was all pretty surreal um, and it was you know it was it was really sort of magical getting to just like play through last guardian and ask them questions every step of the way and they kept being impressed that we were like 
really we, we were really sort of researched on the game and hung up on a lot of small things and they kept being like oh we're you know we're surprised you're noticing these little things uh oh, wow. whether or not it was little things that were important or not we wanted to ask like every possible question and i think if if people are curious to check out that book actually i think it's it's got some pretty cool like very granular details that that fans would appreciate um and then i was actually a little bit nervous the second day like i i mean i've i've had the good fortune to like work in the industry for 10 years and meet a lot of sort of the legendary designers and i don't really get starstruck anymore um uh in a way that is just like convenient for my job or at least what my job was but i think for ueda i was still like you know i was still nervous just because i hadn't met him in person i interviewed him over email uh, both at one up back in the day and then um and then for the, sort of a smaller interview for the show of the colossus book and you know he came in the second day and this was this was again there was sort of a lot of baggage around the game and i think he was like you know i think he didn't want to be there the first day because he didn't sort of want to sit through and like play the whole thing and talk about it sort of quite that you know in in real time but he came in for an interview and to chat with us and um and when i met him he he didn't know that it was going to be me that was there he knew that future press was doing this interview but he knew who i was because because of the shadow of the colossus book and it was uh really nice because uh our our mutual friend ryan payton who helped out with the book and he was um there sort of helping translate and everything he introduced me to ueda san and ueda was like oh nick sutner like and immediately recognized me with just like this massive relief uh where you know i just knew that he i think um i would like to think sort of respected me as a as a fan of his in you know in a fairly like formal capacity i'd written the book and um i think he you know he knew he could be a little bit more relaxed about this than just around like a total stranger um which was it was just a great sort of moment and that was like a you know a pressure valve release for me to be able to relax a bit and um it was still intense because he's such a brilliant dude and i have such respect for his stuff and he has such a big influence over me but um which is great then to have that sort of like unbridled conversation about things and and sort of talk about his whole career and the game and a lot of that made it into the interview in the book two-part question yeah <laughs> the second question depends on the answer the first um Ooh. i assume you do but do you still do you still play all three games um i haven't in a little while now i mean i played through shadow of the colossus uh i think four or five times when i was writing the book um and and once you sort of know the game and get good at it in a sense and are just going to see specific parts you can get through it in like you know three hours pretty easily um yeah and then uh when the remaster came out uh, i played through about half of it and then um some local friends and i actually streamed an entire game length playthrough of the whole game um, from start to finish a few days afterwards uh, that we called the slow jam, which was like the opposite of a speed run, um, which this whole this whole 10 and a half hours is on YouTube. But it was fun because we 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 streamed the whole thing and we invited a lot of local like game industry friends over to like come in and play with us and chat with us. And so it was just this very sort of like chilled out playthrough of it, which, yeah, it took about 10 hours. Um, and that's actually the only time I've played through the the remaster and I haven't touched touched it since. I, you know, I figure... Last Guardian is probably the one I would go back to first for another playthrough, um, but inevitably I'll play through the play through them all a couple more times in my life. I'm sure. All right, so moving on to part two. When you boot it up and start playing it, I mean, I know for the book, your your a lot of it was for research, but like, do you still get what you got initially when you played it, or do you see it as like all its deconstructed parts now that you've kind of uh, gone deep into the games? Sure. No, I think actually, uh, I, I 
for whatever reason, I think it's it's been nice to work in. Since I've worked in games, I've been pretty good about being able to like uh, turn off that deconstructive part of my brain and just experience things how they're meant to be experienced for the most part. And I, you know, I'm glad I can still do that. Uh, and just the way I, I play games tends to be very like in character and trying to put myself in the character that I'm playing and and act like them. Um, and I'm still able to do that, which is which is nice. And I think certainly there's there's parts where I where I did sort of step outside of myself in a way to look a little more objectively at things in the game to talk about it while I was playing it for research for the book. But generally I can't really separate myself from that emotion entirely. Um, like I'm someone that when I play like a game like Skyrim, uh, it, it it's a pretty like stressful, nervous game for me because I don't like like being out by myself in this huge open world of th- with things that can kill me. Like it's pretty creepy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think in the same way, even being alone and even knowing everything that could happen in the world of Shadow, I can't I can't fully remove myself from the sort of feeling of like adventure and being out in the wilderness that the game evokes in me. You mentioned that you only played the remaster once, but one thing that I'd come across when I was doing the research for this episode is uh, I guess like a twofold problem of, of people going to play the remaster. One is if you'd encountered the game before um, it's the, the entire problem of you can never go home. You can never experience the game the same way that you did it the first time. And you definitely can't experience the remaster the way that somebody who's never played any shadow of the Colossus will. But I was wondering one of the things that I'd came across is that even for people who are new to the game, or who were revisiting the game who had played the, the previous version, it has a, a different feel to it. Um, and I was wondering what your experiences were with that. Sure. Yeah, it's something that I thought a lot about and and I talked a lot about with, with friends and on, on other podcasts and stuff around release. Uh, that, and I'm glad some time has passed, actually, so I can reassess that a little bit. Uh, you know, I think it's... it it You're right, you can't go home again. And especially as for me, it's like... It's hard to compare that to that first seminal experience in playthrough. Um, and leading up to the release, I think I had some sort of cynicism about the fact that they were going to like fix the controls in in air quotes, um, uh, just because it was like I never took any issues with the controls, and I you know I can see where some people did, but I, I didn't have major problems. Um, and so I was concerned about sort of the, the default way of playing the game changing um, in a sense and aesthetically as well. That sort of like, um, you know, bright bloom lighting you talked about in the beginning uh, that is characteristic of the games. That's a little more muted. Um, it doesn't feel so dreamlike uh, and it does play sort of a little more smoothly in a sense. There's lots of other small changes. There's these little coins you can find out in the world, which is in some ways completely antithetical to the, the you know, <laughs> sort of real core feeling of the game um but i think as just a a sort of piece of history to exist in a way that modern gamers can easily play i think it is really it's incredibly well done it's totally gorgeous still i mean i thought it was a beautiful game already and it held up really well especially the the ps3 hd remaster we mentioned i think that's sort of the the perfect version of it um but i'm totally happy for it to exist in this form um and it's nice to be able to, like, when I talk to people about the game, it's like, oh, yeah, you can go play it on your PS4. And I think for a lot of people, the experience they have with for the first time will be close to the experience I had in my mind's eye as the memory of the first time playing it, even if side by side it's it's sort of different now. Yeah, I don't know. what Did you guys have a similar experience? Had you played the original and the new one? No, so I've only... Um, for a lot of games... 
One of the challenges of doing a podcast every week is we can't possibly be fans of every single thing that we covered. So Shadow of the Colossus and Last Guardian and Ico are things that I've experienced bits and pieces of secondhand. Um, like I've had friends that were playing through Shadow of the Colossus and I'd had the opportunity to play a little bit of it. I've watched people play th- through it and I've, I think I remember watching some of the E3 coverage when Last Guardian was announced as actually coming out it was like the surprise trailer but um i i can't really comment on you know going from the original to the the remaster because i haven't i don't have that first-hand experience i i guess i could say that i still have the benefit of being able to play the game for the first time. yeah <laughs> but it's yeah. A, it's a little muddied sure sure yeah i uh i also have never played the games i've seen a full playthrough of uh, shadow of the colossus but uh in the second uh, sort of generation of the console wars i i firmly stuck by nintendo and so missed out on everything on playstation playstation 2 hmm. yeah there's some good stuff on gamecube oh yeah for sure that's true <laughs> tragically for the sake of the podcast i have almost an identical story to z <laughs> okay um, <laughs> the only the only reason i know about this game is because of because of the movie rain over me okay which yeah which is uh, which is really interesting actually that that's the only way you know of it and and i like that movie and i think its place in that movie is is really weird and an interesting use of it like a movie that's well spoiler is a movie that's about 9 11 um that has sort of the visuals of these giant like creatures toppling um with pretty interesting choice of using that game and and i think using a game in a in like a diegetic metaphorical function in a way that like games have never really been used in film before yeah it's more of you know more more of a you know an arrow toward towards the video game as art and i found an article about adam sandler like watching someone play it to see if maybe it would work for the movie Mm -hmm. and he was like super into it and apparently by the end of the shooting both don Cheadle and adam sandler were pros at the game (laughs) (laughs) those were your famous last words we're fans thrilled to have the game featured Adam Sandler's Rain Over Me. And when you mention that, I'm like, oh, they featured a video game in a movie. And then Nick Prime is like, oh, yeah, it's, it's you know, kind of a metaphor for 9-11. I'm like, hold on. Adam Sandler, Shadow of the Colossus, 9-11. Like, what? A, it's apparently. A, it's a serious I missed movie. something. It's like. His, yeah. his dramas yeah, yeah, go deep. Um, but yeah, there's also like a whole scene where Adam Sandler is just explaining how you play the game in detail. And that wasn't in the script. He was just doing that. <laughs> or they asked him to do it or something like that. The, the article yeah, read that about was, it pointed that out, yeah. That was one sort of uh, sadly like lost lost chapter I wish I had had for the book. I, I mentioned it briefly in the book, I, I believe. But um, <laughs> I wanted to talk more about it. And I reached out to the – there's a Kotaku article. I think it's Kotaku about the sort of how yeah. that all happened. And they, right they reference – yeah, okay. So, yeah, right. So, they referenced the producer or something whose idea it was. And I reached out to him actually through IMDb. And he got back to me initially. He was like, oh, hey, yeah. And and he just like never responded because I wanted to interview him and talk about this. And he just never responded to any follow up oh, uh, emails. That, that's and um, that, that would have been cool to sort of hear it from him firsthand. I guess that's like the life of like a LA movie producer is like you don't get back to everybody. But um, almost had him. I don't know what scared him off. <laughs> yeah. And like, he said that the key thing is it wasn't just like, oh, I'm playing a video game. It's like, oh, I'm playing Shadow of the Colossus, and this is what happens in the game, and this is how you play the game. So it was like very much about including that game in the movie. Mm-hmm. I also got really excited because I talked about uh, 
Quadrophenia by The Who, which was my favorite album at the time. Not a fun or funny movie, but it's a good movie. Even not having played the game, but knowing about the game and having, other, having seen other people experience the game, a large part of it seems to be the art, the aesthetic, the feeling of the game. And while the mechanics are important to the game in the sense that it, it makes it a game... Um, it's almost like not the most important part of it. It's that middleness story storytelling and the aesthetic. Um, what do you think about, or I should say a lot of people kind of argue that this is one of the good arguments for, you know, video games are art in and of themselves. Uh, if somebody said that to you, what, what would you say to them? I mean, I think people sort of confuse that a lot with games are art as in visual art and aesthetic art as as a lot of people think of when they think of the word art and, and art being inherently non-interactive, which was, I think, one of Roger Ebert's arguments against mm-hmm. games as art when he was alive, um, is that the, uh, the sort of... Um, non-authored nature of, of games allowing you to interact with them and, and sort of steer your own experience inherently did not make them art and uh which is a bummer because he didn't really play anything firsthand and then he died so we can't have this this discussion with him. <laughs> um but uh i i think holistically the game is art and that's really the important part um that's the takeaway is you can look at a screenshot and it's beautiful and intriguing and it doesn't look like other games and that's all cool and that makes it visual art but i think the way that the story is told and uh the way that the feelings of the game are expressed through gameplay and that your actions are representative of other things happening in the story um and uh just just everything and the way that the music cues are used and all the small things so i think really it's a uh, holistically, it is a it is an incredibly artful experience by any definition of art. Um, so I, I think it does go beyond the aesthetic, even if that is sort of the most clearly important part as as far as drawing people in. As I said before, I haven't played the game. I've only read about mm-hmm. it and watched it. So I'm going to take a big leap here, and I hope that I'm I'm right in this. But, <laughs> but okay, so <clears throat> you ever read like Garfield without Garfield? Or oh, yeah. Big Bang I, Theory. I copy in my, my copy. <laughs> or Big Bang Theory. Those big, things are like big, opposite. Big Bang the Theory without the <laughs> Big Bang Theory without the laugh track. Oh, without the laugh track. Yes, yeah. I'm a big fan of that. I've shown many people that video. Okay, that's what. That's the sense I get from from the from Shadow of the Colossus. Because like you're in <laughs> okay, like you're still you're still going out. You're still you know roving the landscape and killing monsters but there's there's none of that fr- framework there to be like be like yeah you're progressing you're doing the right thing it's like it seems to be laid very ambiguous as to whether what you're doing is 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 right or not or if it even matters it just seems like you're doing it and as you said the the when you beat it, it feels like kind of sad not necessarily victorious so it feels like a bunch of that is stripped away and you just reflect on it Totally. I think that is true. However, I think the uh, I mean, I, I, I really enjoy that comparison. I don't know quite that quite that it works, but because um, I think for that is sort of removing the, you know, removing the central element that sort of holds the whole things together. And then the results turn really surreal. And I think Shadow does have that does have that experience and it does have a framework. It just is is subversive in a way like 
it does you do have a sense of progress and you do have the sense that you are killing these giants to bring this girl back to life because that's what the story tells you and that's what the sort of antagonist tells you um so you get that but it's not the the celebrated feeling along the way you know you feel sort of conflicted about it because you're doing this horrible thing to in theory right some some wrong as far as you're 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 to assume um and i think the game gives you a lot of feedback throughout the way throughout the the experience and even pointing your way towards the colossi i think i'm you know i might be sort of overselling the mystery and ambiguous of it a little bit um you can still certainly play it like a game and make progress and everything else but i think just the feelings and feedback that the game gives you are so antithetical to a lot of other games especially at the time when you look at you know, uh, comparative games like Grand Theft Auto and, and things that were just a totally different set of, of feelings in a lot of ways. And the fact that that went on to be the uh, that was one thing I sort of que- one question I posed in in um, my book is comparing it to God of War 2 and Grand Theft Auto 4 and other games that came out sort of at the time or yeah, I think for three, four, I forget. Um, I guess three. Uh, is is you know what if games had gone down the path uh, of, of Shadow mm-hmm. and Eco and um, oh, actually, sorry, maybe I'm confusing these things. Maybe those come out at the same time as as Eco. But anyways, the point is like, what if games did not take the you know ultra violent, hyper realistic, uh, uh, you know, very sort of like um, player empowerment yeah. uh, route? Like, I think everything we play now is is this empowerment simulator in some sense, which uh, I did not coin, but I saw it given in a talk this last weekend, which I really enjoyed. Um, uh, you know, what if games were more about sort of manipulating our manipulating our feelings and telling a different sort of a story and playing with a you know a range of a range of emotions and not just sort of this power fantasy. Um, and and we have gotten both. And I think indie games have really uh, widened the breadth of that field and that spectrum in the last like seven eight years, especially uh, which is or ten years I guess at this point, um, which is awesome. But it took a while to to get back there. Um, and I think even now in sort of the most celebrated modern games, you know, maybe a little bit in God of War, but especially in things like Last of Us, there, even though they're these big AAA experiences, there's rooms for more smaller, more human moments. And I think that's why people really ultimately respond so well to them is it's not sort of the, you know, the survival horror, you know, terror, you know, terrifying like enemy design. It's these quiet little human interactions and speculating like, okay, well, what does the desperation feel like of being one of the last people alive in the apocalypse? And um, so I'm, I'm glad that games are maturing in that sense. I was trying to think of, I'm, there's probably many examples and often when you're forced to think of one, you can't think of any. And so I was like, oh, yeah, like the Stanley Parable. I'm like, well, not really. That's that's a game that's kind of surreal where you have a narrator and it's like novel in that sense. So it's it's not it's not like it's not like Shadow of the Colossus, but it, it, it's probably more that indicative. are evoking like a, se- a separate set of feelings. Yeah. Yeah, I think that even are less some, about an, an empowerment fantasy. Yeah, I think even something like Gone Home is a good a good modern example. That's a very mundane thing about a girl going home to or, or I, you know, what remains to be the Finch has a similar sort of high level plot, even if the execution is very different of someone going back to their family's home and experiencing sort of very mundane detail and then it turns out i mean i don't want to spoil the whole thing for gone home but it turns out it's really reflecting on a relationship that she had and it's all very mundane real world stuff you know that we would see in an independent film or something but i think um had never really been tackled uh, or rarely tackled in an interactive medium um 
And I mean, Gone Home is, you know, pretty old at this point, relatively, but I think that's that's a good example of the sorts of things that weren't fully explored in the AAA space that uh, I think they see the more that people, um, you know, they, they, I think they see that exploring these sorts of things tends to broaden an audience. Um, even David Cage's games that tend to be sort of controversial uh, in, in a lot of ways, uh, and people really, I think... Uh, tend to dismiss them and i think they can be very heavy-handed and sloppy but i think you know they've always sold really well and i think brought in a new audience um and i always sort of yeah i was working at playstation at the time and when god of war 3 i want to say came out at the same time as heavy rain uh, or one of the god of wars i was really frustrated that like 90 percent of the marketing was going towards god of war uh, because to me, God of War has its audience built in already. Like they're going to know a new God of War game is coming out that doesn't need help. Whereas Heavy Rain, I think the the results could have been exponential with putting a ton of marketing into something like that because it's you know it's basically CSI as a game. <laughs> um, it's this interesting you know it's it's and everyone watch you know tens of millions of people watch CSI, um, and so there is this sort of untapped audience that could have been there for that game, and the game did sell really well over time. So I think they came anyways, but. I think once in a while, AAA games do have this opportunity to seize a larger market. And I think even more recently, uh, Detroit, um, you know, his his most recent game, again, maybe not the most subtle game in the world. I actually haven't played it yet, uh, even though I'm very excited to. Uh, that's another one that I think just by being a game about more than just a power fantasy really appeals to a wider breadth of people. It kind of actually feeds into a little bit, a little bit of the... Uh... The idea that uh, part of the popularity comes from Eco and uh, Shadow and The Last Guardian being less about power fantasies and more about um, kind of, I don't want to say disempowerment, but like thinking specifically of Shadow of the Colossus kind of a little bit. Anyway. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, the fandom that, that came up around these games, how much of it do you think is about people sort of sharing these dreamlike experiences? Because, I mean... I know you said yourself when you first experienced it, um, when you first played Shadow of the Colossus or Eco or both, you were sort of a gamer without much of a community. But then later on, when you were playing the remaster and you did that slow jam uh, stream of, of it, you kind of brought in a lot of people. And I mean, obviously, those are slightly different experiences. But um, in reading about the games and in, in reading about, you know, the, the Reddits, the Quora's, the the forums, that kind of thing. So much of the fandom seems to be about speculation and theories and that kind of thing. And like, how much, how much do you think the fandom is about people coming together and trying to like make sense of this thing as a community rather than just as individuals? Uh, I think it's, it's sort of both ends of that spectrum actually, where I think now with the internet and gaming communities as they are, especially around the last guardian, like there is a lot of speculation and questions and how does it tie into shadow of the Colossus. But to me, that's sort of the, the more hardcore fans of the game and that, that group is only ever going to be relatively niche. So I think there is that group that exists on one end of the spectrum, but I think the other end of the spectrum is, uh, you know, single player games that appeal, like I'm talking about a bit to a broader audience (laughs) and have, a little more emotional resonance, but also just give you space to breathe and think and take in the environment um, and leave you with way more questions than you had going in. And I think a lot of people 
uh, I would guess, more casual gamers who play through The Last Guardian, they still end the experience with dozens of questions, but they're not going to go to Reddit and ask those questions. They're just going to sit on those questions and internalize them and maybe talk about them with friends if they have the opportunity. But I think that's really nice. And I think that's mm-hmm. um, I think that's the strong, you know, really, uh, that's a strong indicator of any piece of media is if you're still talking about it afterwards. And I you know, I, I watch a lot of films and I go to the theater twice a week probably and uh, my girlfriend and I see a lot of films and, and oftentimes we'll still be talking about a film a week later even if we didn't like it and to me that is, that's more important than seeing something, especially like a I keep coming back to superheroes for some reason this episode, maybe because that's the <laughs> de facto empowerment fantasy. But, I, you know, I've seen every modern superhero film as well, but most of them, they don't stay with me. They're mm-hmm. a great time for two hours and then they're done. Um, I'm not thinking about it and asking questions where like, I mean, and I'm, I'm now I'm just sound like pretentious hipster, but like <laughs> last night, last night I saw a movie called The Favorite by Yorgos Lanthimos, who did Killing of a Sacred Deer and The Lobster yes. and Dogtooth. Yeah. I don't know if you guys have. Yeah. So. Uh, and he, his stuff is like really dark and weird and surreal and great. And I would encourage everyone to go see this movie when it comes out like end of November. But, um, but, uh, it's, even if I didn't like the film, it would stay with me and I'd be talking about it for a while and thinking about it and asking friends if they'd seen it. Um, and that, that to me is, is sort of always going to be more interesting. And the way that those pieces of media fit into my life is more interesting than just like, having a great time seeing it i mean i loved infinity war but like and i saw it twice in the theater but like i'm not really thinking about infinity war and i'll i'll think about it you know a month before the new one comes out but uh no that that's okay it's like the idea that i mean it's not like it's a categorical situation but it's like there is some media who that's intent is obviously more uh i was gonna say disposable but more intended to be consumed and then there's media that, uh, well, if it is intended to be consumed, is intended to be consumed over like a long period of time. It's like a, like snack food versus like a hearty meal. Totally. And it's also the what we keep talking about of like, uh, you know, power fantasy or escapism in media. Um, and I think that that is how I tend to think about a lot of things, even like TV shows is like either you can watch something just as pure entertainment Um or you can watch something that comments on the human condition. And and the best things, I think, are things that do both of those, of course. But I think things that you can internalize and reflect on and think about how they apply to your life and whatever, like, those are going to sit with you. Whereas, like, the junk food stuff is just going to – you're going to enjoy it and move on. And I think, like everything, you need both. You need a balance. You need moderation in your life. But um, I think in games especially, to bring it back to the topic, mm-hmm. I think um, people often don't tend to have that in, in gaming. And it's easy to just, like – uh, you know, I don't know, play Destiny every night. Um, like, I, you know, I see, and I'm not judgmental of anyone who does, and maybe you guys do as well, but I have to admit that when I look at my, uh, you know, PSN friends, when I'm like hopping on to play something, and I see that like two thirds of my friends are still playing Destiny every night years later, like, it's a great game, and I did the same with Halo, um, and, you know, I played Rocket League for a while, and, um, but I think people who, don't allow themselves to sample a wider breadth of what games have to offer are, are just doing themselves a, a disservice, um, especially because a lot of these things you can get through in three or four hours and have a really meaningful experience that will stay with you for a while. Um, so I feel like I'm always encouraging people to like, well, just, you know, try this small thing for a few hours and sort of break out of the the norm when you tend to just like get stuck in the junk food aisle. It's, it's, it's like a ritual where, you know, every day you decide I'm going to fight a Colossus. 
because you think it's going to do something that's going to benefit you. <laughs> mm-hmm. But then afterwards you feel horrible and you do that a bunch more times and you never figure it out until it's all over. Yeah, it's like negative reinforcement and then you just feel <laughs> sad at the end. I think, I think it's like, some of it's like turning turning people on to, to stuff like that, to like, you know, the video game as our idea. Because a lot of people are like, it's a foregone conclusion that if I'm playing video games, I'm eating junk food kind of thing. Yeah, Like yeah, that's what yeah. video games mean. Yeah, but uh, like not so anymore. But uh, right. it's a matter of uh, telling people that there's that variety out there. Like people are starting to finally make things shorter on purpose now. <laughs> right, and I don't know. That's I mean that feels like one of the challenges of my lifetime in in some ways is like how even if in a small part how how can I be part of like changing that and bucking that expectation? I think the way that games are still thought about and talked about. Uh, you know, 30 years later is still the same. Um, and that, that can be depressing uh, in a way that, like, I really just want my parents to appreciate the medium <laughs> that I work in, you know, and, and the fact that they don't and are still not not sort of proactive, not actively dismissive of it, but I think inherently can't not be dismissive to some extent because they think about it as just sort of this pure entertainment thing. Like, that's a bit of a bummer. So um, I don't know. I hope to... And that, that's actually honestly what, what part of me writing the book was about is trying to express my love for this thing um, in a way that is like communicable to someone who may not play it or may not want to play it. And and both my parents read my book and that that's probably the closest they got to, you know, experiencing some of these feelings. But I'm sure some of it was still lost on them. And I think games are inherently interactive. So you do have to experience it firsthand. And that goes back to the thing of Ebert, like being very judgmental of games as art without ever having like laid hands on anything firsthand. Uh, far be it for me to draw parallels, but Z, do you feel some of the same burden in your, in your uh, <laughs> quest for, for uh, genre fiction? Legitimacy? It's, uh, it's ah. not me picking on Z this week. <laughs> <laughs> I would say this I'm... is picking on him. But... <laughs> No, no, it's not. <laughs> I mean, a, a little bit. I've kind of, jeez, uh, I feel I feel kind of bad saying it, but like, I'm kind of okay with it. Like, if if the literati oh, okay. don't want their genre <laughs> fiction, don't want awesome genre fiction. If the literati don't want stories that actually have an ending, then that's their problem. Ooh. There, I said it. Man. <laughs> kind of just uh, j- jumping on, or just very brief tangent kind of quoting Derwin Mack a little bit and um, I remember sitting in a, in, a, uh, in a panel with him he's this writer who is often at these uh, anime fan conventions that the three of us uh, <laughs> go to quite a bit um, and I remember his uh, his sort of talk about uh, editors like magazine ed- editors and that sort of thing what they look for in stories and that sort of that sort of thing and uh, literary magazines look for stories that just sort of don't really have endings and then genre magazines look for stories that have like your sort of uh i guess classical structure of a clear beginning middle and end there there can be a story that you know gives you enough answers to have a sense of closure and resolve the narrative arc yeah but also still leaves you with questions afterward which is maybe the best of both worlds yeah yeah and like i would say that those sorts of stories aren't necessarily limited to uh stories about people going through some sort of like hard time in their life and stories about people trying to steal a dragon's treasure. Totally. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Nick prime. Do you think that the, the remakes either the PS3 remake or the PS4 remake of shadow of the Colossus have brought in 
any new fans for the same reason that people originally became fans of the Eco Team Eco games. Man, yeah, that's a good question. I, I th- I'm sure they did bring bring in fans, and I have seen it firsthand. Um, people experiencing it for the first time and being blown away, and for different reasons. But I think people are coming to it with certain expectations for right. for the most part. I think who are or, or a lot of the people who are excited to play it for the first time, and hopefully you guys will will do that as well. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, after after having uh, after having heard about it or heard about its importance or influence in games or something, um, uh, and not going into it with sort of the same like for the original, there was like a, a curiosity, but no one really knew what the game was going to be or what it was going to be about or the impact it was going to have. So I think inherently they go into it with a different, um, just different context. But I, I think it's still done a great job of bringing a lot more people into it, and the fact that it was still able to deliver this really beautiful memorable moving experience for those people is is you know a big success in my mind spotlight spotlight is a chance to show off a cool fanish cause or or something related to this week's topic that's probably not commercial because we're not sellouts not yet (laughs) i don't know why people say that like it's a bad thing everybody's gotta gotta earn their keep uh but this week's spotlight is a youtube channel called nomad colossus uh, and I came across it from a different article on Kotaku called Meet the Hacker Who Spent Six Years Inside Shadow of the Colossus. Uh, and what struck me about this is, as being like a very interesting fanish project is because the lengths that someone would go to for a game that they love so much to unearth things that could have been that weren't. Uh, and so I'll read this little excerpt from the article. Shadow of the Colossus first came out in 2005. Since then, millions of people have played the beloved PS2 game, driven by its lonesome charm, moved by its mysterious ending. But one man never stopped playing, and as a result, he's found stuff that the game's creators never intended anyone to see. The player in question is Michael Lambert, and he's been excavating Shadow of the Colossus for the last four years on his Nomad Colossus YouTube channel. He's used glitches, external software exploits, and excursions into the bowels of Shadow of the Colossus's game code to extensively map the hidden places, unused ideas, and unheard music tucked away in the game's hidden corners. With the hours he spent inside the game, it's entirely possible that Lambert, along with Secret Hunter's Dark OSSX Pickle WWW area, who mentored him, might know Shadow of the Colossus better than the lead creator, Humito Ueda, and the other men and women who created it. Um, I just thought it was really interesting because that takes a lot of dedication. Having only read a little bit about game development and things like, oh, the Delphin emulator, we we solved this problem so you can play GameCube games better. <laughs> um, not, not knowing a lot in that arena, but knowing that it takes a lot of effort to do that. Uh, I was just struck by it. It seems like a really cool passion project um, in a world where there's not a particularly centralized fandom there's a lot of experiences of like enjoying the game and the feeling of the game but not having one particular point to convene and not that that's necessary either yeah i mean yeah that's a nomad stuff is like a the the deepest rabbit hole so i don't know how (laughs) far we want to dip down it but he's a super super interesting really nice guy i i interviewed him for the book um and have corresponded with him on email a lot and you know, he's he's sort of the ultimate fan if you want to go super, you know, if you want to go all the way down the rabbit hole. Um, and he has, from that sort of uh, standpoint of, like, pulling the game apart and, and writing about it. And if you look on his blog, like, 
he's broken that game down more thoroughly than I've ever seen anything else broken down, period. Not oh. just games, which sounds like hyperbole, but it really <laughs> is not. Um, it's, it's pretty phenomenal. Um, and he's, like you mentioned, he has a bunch of YouTube videos as well. Uh, and j- there's so many interesting like fan theories and things that he's explored. And he has sort of, yeah, he's spent like a lifetime in this game. And, um, you know, I think he, I, I guess I haven't checked in with him recently. And I don't know how much he's done it uh, to the remake. I, I know he certainly had planned to. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty phenomenal thing to like go and just poke around at and um read some of the work that he's done in that space call that further reading yeah (laughs) (laughs) further watching probably hours of further watching it's also very his vibe is very mysterious because there's no there's no vo or anything in the videos it's just text and you never hear him speak you just sort of see these like (laughs) oh these comments on there awesome Mm -hmm. really it fits the vibe of the game you know in Mm -hmm. an interesting way Nick, is there anything that you'd like to plug? I did just start uh, a podcast about Splunky called The Splunky Show Like. I don't know if you guys are Splunky fans or players or um, know much about it, but uh, it's been it's been fun doing so far. We're only three episodes in, but um, sort of exploring the culture of a game for a game that really still has a culture around it years after release. Another game, but sort of maybe the one of the few indie games in that sense. Um, so the Splunky show like is a podcast that I do and it's uh, on iTunes and everywhere else. Um, and uh, yeah, that's the main thing I've been enjoying doing that. I would plug recently. I'm going to check that out. I, I played Splunky a bunch when it had come out and I think I made it to the ice worlds, but I couldn't finish cause it's really hard. <laughs> uh, you should check out our second, ep- second episode, which is a beginner's guide in which we ah. uh, espouse <laughs> a bunch of like tips and learnings and more just as a philosophy of how to, uh, how to approach the game. Less so like, here's how you do it, but more like, here's how to think about it. So it's not so intimidating and, and terrifying the first, you know, the first few times. Uh, oh, and I guess I should also plug like people can buy the shadow of the Colossus book on bossfightbooks.com. Um, also on Amazon, uh, and you can also check out the Last Guardian book, which is called The Last Guardian: An Extraordinary Journey. Uh, also on Amazon. Beautiful. That's our boss fight books hat trick. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. What was there? A, you, what was the first one? Um, With uh, Michael Kimball about uh, yeah. Galaga. About Galaga. Yeah. Oh, that was a Galaga one. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Gotcha. And then Mike Williams, and then me. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> well. <laughs> If you've played through Shadow of the Colossus, read both of those books, gone over to Nomad's channel, and uh, listen, to, listen to all of the oh, Splunky, what's it called, sir? Uh, the, the Splunky Show-like, which is a play on roguelike. Splunky Show-like, thank you. <clears throat> if you've done all that, thank you. and you still find yourself awake and hungry for more content, you can always go over to Phantophological.com and uh, and browse through all the different fandoms that we've covered so far. We're... we're about barrel rolling towards 100 episodes uh so there's plenty over there um wh- however you're listening to this do make sure that you hit the subscribe button get a new brand new episode every friday um and please leave a rating or review while you are there if there's a topic you would like to hear us cover on the show please email us at nick at the com, and we will get to it uh in in relatively good time as for the three of us, we are the Nixcast, and we can be found all over the internet at the Nixcast. Like if you're if you're on something, we're also on it, and we're also on it at the Nixcast. So uh, check us out there. Oh, 
How did I? How could I forget? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, it's the most wonderful time of the year. Uh, not Halloween, but Doctor Who time, and that means uh, that our uh, Doctor Who review podcast is up. Who in review? which can currently be found at hoonerview.podient.co. Uh, it's a rotating cast of the new cast family uh, reviewing the current season, uh, Series 11, as Jodie Whittaker takes on the role of the 13th Doctor. Please join us over there. If you are currently listening to this podcast in audio form through headphones, earbuds, speakers, uh, 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 some sort of sculpy crafted colossus that has like a little little sound chip of some kind in it with bluetooth ability uh bluetooth uh connectivity enabled however you're listening to this if it's just audio you could also be enjoying video that's right we regularly stream the recordings of these episodes and you can find them over at twitch.tv slash the nixcast when do we go live? Well, it's always a good idea to go check out the Twitter, twitter.com slash the Nixcast for uh, up to the minute updates as to when it will be going live. Normally happens around 8 p.m. Uh, Eastern time. Uh, could be Monday, could be Wednesday, could be Tuesday. That's why you got to go check out that Twitter. But you could also just drop on by twitch.tv slash the Nixcast and see if we're online anytime <laughs> and why might you want to do that aside from enjoying video enjoying the the sound and sight of our guests and ourselves well you could participate in the podcast you can drop some questions in the chat you could have a little discussion going on in the chat that maybe you know influences the podcast a little bit you could also potentially Participate in the final and maybe favorite part of the podcast, the famous last words. Famous last words. That's right. The famous last words, which is the part of the show where we make a statement or ask a question about next week's topic before we've done any of the research. Are we a fan of next week's thing? <laughs> Who knows? Uh, maybe yes, maybe no. And regardless, it's something that we're going to say. That cannot be unsaid. Next week, we will have another guest on the show. I believe, Z, you'd mentioned it is... Uh, two, two... Halo Podcast Evolved? Yes, two of the hosts from uh, what I understand is a rotating cast of hosts for the... <laughs> Convenience. <laughs> the podcast, uh, Halo Podcast Evolved, will be joined by Krista and Aaron. Perfect. So, to everyone here, all, all next around... What are your famous last words around Halo or the fandom around Halo? What's up with that talking plant? What's up with that talking plant? <laughs> yep. They'll know the one. <laughs> All right. I now have a secondary item, which is figure out what the talking plant is. And uh, that's fine. I think if you me. go talking plant from Halo, it'll, 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 snap, it'll <laughs> snap together. Well, the topic will okay. snap together, but the answer won't be clear, which yeah. is why we need them on to tell us. <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, this is, I have a broad question for next week, and that is how much of the fandom is not competitive mm -hmm. and not curative? Because uh, we often talk about fandoms being transformative, about making stuff, and about being curative, which is mostly like take the stuff that exists and categorize it and file it away 
I want to know how much of it isn't just shooting each other and how much isn't just filing it all away. And I don't know how I'm going to answer that, but I'm going to find out next week. Actually, I can, I can give you a pretty good uh, bridge between these two episodes, by the way, as well, uh, which Ooh. is something that's in my book. So I interviewed um, uh, Jamie Griesemer, who was the creative director on the first couple of Halo games. And he's sort of the one who infamously made like uh, shooter controls work on a console um, and really one of the masterminds of Halo. And now he runs a company called High Wire Games, who are working in VR. Um and because uh, he had actually mentioned to me this influence that was pretty interesting. Uh, if you guys remember in Halo 2, uh, there's a part on the beach where you're driving around a warthog and there's a huge scarab um, like walking around a sort of big robot creature. Uh, and you, you're on the back of warthogs and you have rocket launchers and you're firing it at the scarab. And that actually was uh, directly influenced by Shadow of the Colossus and sort of taking on this giant beast. And you actually climb up onto the scarab and have to go inside and put a bomb in it to blow it up. Because uh, the Bungie team were just playing Shadow of the Colossus over lunch one day. <laughs> And they were like, oh, what if we had sort of the same, like, you know, David and Goliath feeling, but with rocket launchers. Um, <laughs> and uh, so that, that yeah. So, so again, it's sort of an interesting place where it influenced the big AAA game and series in a, a pretty, like, uh, you know, relatively abstract connection that no one ever really picked up on or pointed to. Hey, so I said, I'm going to take a, Z- a Z-like swing here and uh, uh, having never played the game, say, say um, do the Halo series... At- uh, John, any any inspiration from Starship Troopers? Well, uh, I am similarly going to take a. Well, not even. <laughs> you like not, swing? It's not, not even a swing. It's a it's a question, but it's not much of a statement. Uh, I am curious to see. Um, is the Halo franchise set up to keep going, even though there are no new games on the horizon? Like, do Halo fans move on after a certain age, or? Are there Halo fans who got hooked when they were in their teens and now, however many years later, are still diehard Halo fans? Wait, isn't there, though? Isn't Halo Infinite a thing? What's Halo Infinite? Oh, man. This, this shows how little <laughs> I know about about these games. Halo Infinite, is that I like could, I... some kind of uh, online MMO uh, kind of thing? In, in June 2018, the next main installment of the Halo series was announced as Halo Infinite. Well, never mind. <laughs> All right. Well, well I'll just, hold on. You to just the... got your answer. It was, uh, it was a quick <laughs> question to answer time. It's still a valid question. Oh, oh yeah. There's, there's also. Oh. Sorry, I got one more quote here. In December 2014, uh, 343 Industries general manager Bonnie Ross expressed Microsoft's aim for the Halo series to last at least 30 more years. <laughs> Oof. Whoa. Okay. I'll, uh, I'll jump a leap. Master Chief, like from the collapsing uh, ship, that was the first half of that question, and and cling to the second half. Do Halo fans move on after a certain age? That's a, that's a great question. <laughs> some would Will say Halo some... fans outlive the franchise. Ooh. Yeah, I, I hope so. Going to go for quite some time now. <laughs> All right. Well, the only thing that remains is to say thank you very much, Nick, for coming on. It was super enlightening having you. No, thanks so much for having me. This was this was uh, great. Sorry, I, I feel like I, I monopolized the the conversation, but I guess that's part of the point. Uh, you know, you know more yeah. than we do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, now I just really want you guys to play it. Mm-hmm. I well, what's over here? You tell me what's it gonna what's it gonna take to like <laughs> interrupt your regularly scheduled game <laughs> and and play a game that is essentially functionally thirteen years old. I mean, I, I think we've done at the age 
that does uh, no problem for me. I mean, I think no. I just needed to do this episode of the podcast. And that's pretty <laughs> much enough. <sighs> I mean, it, the podcast has successfully led to a few things that I wouldn't have done, like watching Supernatural. Hmm. Uh, still haven't watched Twin Peaks. Any of like, we've often been like, okay, we're gonna go and do some of these things, and a lot of the time, it's it's worked out. I think for me, the biggest thing to playing Shadow of the Colossus would be if it came out for PC, I'd probably play it tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, is it not out for PC? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, I don't think it is. No. It's odd. Yeah. It's odd. No. I re- I re- oh. But if it, if it did, I'd have to get a PS3 yeah. or a 4 yeah. or etc. Yeah. Oh. Or 2 or 2, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. could work the way backwards. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I recently right, found a PS2 uh, at, a, at a local thrift store, so I just need to find the game now and then oh, there you I'm go. good. Yeah. You're sad. Maybe we'll do a, we'll do a stream or something. Ooh, that'd be fun. Mm, yeah. Let me ask you this question, even though we're at the very end of the episode now. Is the is <laughs> I, just, I just thought of it. Is the experience of of watching someone else play it significantly different to being the person playing it? Man. Yes. Uh although I think that's true for every game. Like that's one one thing that makes me feel old, uh, is like not understanding like streaming culture. And you guys mentioned you like watch playthroughs and stuff, which I like yeah. I, I just don't think I, I could do. I don't think I'd enjoy it. Um, and for me, like games, you know, by their by their nature are are interactive. And that's sort of what makes them tick and what defines them. And it's like for me, it has to be experienced firsthand unless you want to sort of whatever, see a cutscene ending or something. But mm-hmm. um, but I think especially so the the in Shadow of the Colossus, the act of like you fighting and killing the Colossi really makes makes all the difference and having those feelings first-hand experience through an avatar at least um is is essential to the experience so I, I i for me it's not the same watching someone else that said if if doing a playthrough is what gets you guys to play it or doing a stream you should do it <laughs> uh yeah i mean i'm i'm <laughs> super interested now i love the whole yeah the whole vibe of the whole thing um so yeah i guess that's the end of the show what's the thing that i say that's right that's right <laughs> <clears throat> So thank you for listening, everybody. And until next time, we'll talk to you next time. like i just talked about myself and not about the the rest of the fandom (laughs) some episodes are like somewhere between interview and about the fandom because uh so far we have not interviewed any i don't think we've interviewed any formal scholars on the subject of fandom or on the subject of fandom around a particular group so the best that we can do is talk to people to better understand why they love the thing and hopefully learn more about other fans a lot of the time we get that yeah Sometimes we learn that the Phantom is dead. Nah. Um, as happened with Galaga. Yep. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But oftentimes we learn things about the Phantom that we wouldn't unearth through our research. And we probably wouldn't unearth even if we found academic research. Because Phantom probably goes well beyond any particular game or genre or media. And uh, so I think, I think that's okay. I mean, I... 
I thought it was really encouraging. Yeah, a little bit encouraging and a little bit uh, enlightening to hear about your experiences, you know, writing the book and about with the the, the game and, and meeting the creators of the game and uh, even just a little bit of your history in the the game development industry. <laughs> cool, great. Okay. That's, yeah. That's, yeah. I, I, and I, I think it's a game where I, I'm totally not alone in my feelings at all. Either I know that, <laughs> and while I may have had a first, uh, you know, sort of a more first-hand interaction with some of it, and maybe I'm like tainted now because of that, <laughs> um, I think the sort of feelings I had about the game the first time around are probably the feelings that a lot of other people had, including people like Neil Druckmann, who go on to like, you know, be this industry luminary who had like a key influence from from eco and so again these games have really worked their way into into modern games even if it's often more subtle cool 